0: Charles Cuyum's book, A Catholic Quest for the Holy Grail, connects this item of legend with real relics of the Passion, chivalry, and a long history of Catholic tradition. Of course, we talk about King Arthur, Sir Gawain, and other legendary figures along the way. Before we get to my conversation with Charles, I want to thank you for listening, and I want to thank everyone who supports this podcast. If you enjoy The Flowered Path and you'd like to help me to continue to make content, please consider becoming a patron at Patreon. All patrons get the regular episodes ad-free, often before they drop in the regular feed. Rose and Orchid-tier patrons also get shout-outs on the show, along with occasional bonus episodes and other audio content. And Orchid-tier patrons get monthly merch mailings as well. You can check out all the options and benefits at patreon.com slash thefloweredpath. If you want to make a one-time donation, you can do that as well. Just click the support button at thefloweredpath.com and look for the PayPal button that says Donate. If you can't support the show financially, you can still help by sharing episodes on social media and with your family and friends and by subscribing wherever it is that you are listening. If you feel inclined to leave a nice review, that will help as well. If you could look up our YouTube channel and subscribe even if you don't listen there, that will help us get episodes to more ears as well. I'd like to welcome Charles Cuyon to the Flowered Path. How are you doing tonight?
1: Very well. Very well indeed.
0: How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Very excited to talk to you. I just finished your book today, A Catholic Quest for the Holy Grail, and I loved it.
1: No, thanks. I, although I'm, I'm a little bit shot. An interviewer who reads the book, what's next?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but... Tan and Sophia Institute Press are keeping me quite busy because I insist on reading the books, and they keep pitching me wonderful authors, and I have to read the books. I'm not a terribly fast reader either, so but I'm happy for
1: it. Well, on behalf of all my fellow authors, I can only say thank you. Thank you. Well, before
0: we get started with this, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, let me see. I, uh, I was born in uh, New York City on the day that John F. Kennedy was elected. My dad used to say, Camelot's gone, but you're still here. <laughs> I was a stand-up comedian before I took to a life of crime as a writer. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah. You know, I've been writing, uh, well, my first book appeared in 1987. And since that time, I've both written books, maybe 15 by now. And I've kept up a steady flow of articles and journalism and that kind of thing. I've just received the... uh, Master's of Sacred Theology from the International Theological Institute in Trumau, Austria, where I am as we speak in Trumau. Wow. And let me see, what else can I tell you? When I was six, we moved to LA, and I've spent most of my life there the last five years I've been here. And I uh, went through a mixture of Catholic and public schools. I'm an alumnus of New Mexico Military Institute and Cal State Northridge. Those are my two colleges uh, prior to here. And uh, let me see, I guess that's about all one can stand. Are all of your books nonfiction? Uh, Well, sort of, kind of, in a way. I wrote one semi-fictional book about an American monarchy in the future called Star-Spangled Crown. But as a number of readers have pointed out to me, it's primarily an exposition of history. Mm. It's historical up to a point, and then it jumps off into fiction.
0: Interesting. So I've written like five or six nonfiction books, which... I love doing because I love research. I just, I love it. I've tried to, you know, I've started a novel, let's put it that way. I find it so much more difficult than nonfiction.
1: Well, I, I mean, you know, in it, it, doing Star-Spangled Crown, it, it really, it's not a novel per se, but fictionalizing it was a way to get across certain ideas that were just easier to do that way. Mm-hmm. Because I was dealing with two separate subjects. One, a, a friend of mine, Christophe Buffalo chozalb who wrote a book called The End of Democracy, had pointed out to me that there was not a body of, a single body of Catholic monarchist thought, because monarchy by its nature is very national. I wanted to look at what was common to all Catholic monarchies on the one hand. But on the other hand, I also wanted to look at an American patriotism that's not based upon 1776 and all that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so the two, the idea of looking at what a, uh, a catholic monarchy on the uh, grafted onto the united states might look like allowed me to both because it was not related to an existing monarchy it allowed me to look at catholic monarchy in, in the abstract and it also allowed me to examine the roots of america which i think are the the foundation of any real patriotism the the combination of our colonial origins french spanish and, uh, and british and what the immigrants brought afterwards. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I could go on about that, but that's... So you see, it was fiction of a sort, but not really.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, in a sense, like historical fiction, except fut- futurical fiction.
1: Well, yeah, and there, and there certainly wasn't, uh, wasn't too much of a plot, except that I described the way the monarchy came in. That was the only, that's the only real action, per se, in the thing. It was my last book before the Holy Grail book, which, uh, you know, is it's is kind of poignant for me because the fellow who uh, commissioned it was uh, my editor, before he was my editor at TAN, John Morehouse, his name was. he uh, I wrote for him when he ran a magazine called Catholic Men's Quarterly. He was a really, really great fellow, and he uh, shepherded both the Holy Grail book and the book after the uh, Blessed Emperor Charles book through the process. And then, very sadly, and at a very early age, he was younger than me, he died, and uh, a real, uh, a real loss—not just to me, even to his family, and to the company, but really to Catholic letters in the United States as a whole. And I—I I don't say that as hyperbole. It was a real loss. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, it's. You know, it is what it is. So um, I'm writing another book now, the sequel to the Emperor, Emperor Charles book, uh, about Emperor Zita, because the Emperor Charles book did so well. But it's, you know, I, I can't help thinking as I'm going through it, what John would have said about this and that, you know. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, let's turn to the subject at hand, a Catholic quest for the Holy Grail. I don't know how deep people get into Holy Grail stuff. I spent some time researching it for better and worse in the past. I'm guessing most people are familiar, at least topically, with Arthurian legends, or maybe just familiar with it from Indiana Jones or something.
1: I'd say a combination of Indiana Jones and Monty Python.
0: Monty Python? There you go. Yeah. Yeah, that's another one. So, you know, I think, again, the general idea, I think most people probably think it's just the, the cup that Christ used at the Last Supper. But you make a point in your book that it could be that, but it might be more than that uh so it's it's, i guess the question is you know what could the grail be what are the what are the candidates for the holy grail
1: well what what makes it you know the whole holy grail thing is very much a moving target and it's funny how many uh people who write about it myself included they'll tell you in the foreword this isn't the book i set out to write Hmm. In the Grail stories, the Arthurian stories, starting in the late 1100s with uh, the mid-1100s with Chrétien de Troyes, and ending in the uh, early 1200s with Wolfram von Eschenbach. Uh, Mind you, there were Grail stories written after that, but this was when the sort of canon was established. The idea was primarily that it was the cup used at the uh, Last Supper by Christ to do the First Mass, as it were. But there were other theories. One was it was in Wolfram, it's an emerald that fell from Lucifer's crown when he fell. And others had it being a, a dish used at the Last Supper. In I think uh, Boron has it as a book. It there were varied things, but as the as time went on, people pretty much focused on the Grail Grail's cup thing. It's interesting though that Reflecting uh, von Eschenbach, one of the candidates for the Grail is called the Sacro Catino in Genoa. And it was believed by many to be the Holy Grail, but it was also believed to be a dish made out of emerald, which obviously refers back to Wolfram, although rather you got the idea from the Sacro Catino, or vice versa, who knows. But the interesting thing about that is that Napoleon took it from Genoa and had it tested to see what it was. The great irony is that it's not emerald. It's green colored glass, but first century. And so while it's not emerald, it's thus likely to have been present at the Last Supper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the other candidates, their number the Agate Bowl here in Vienna at the Hofburg, my personal favorite, the uh, Sacro Calis, the Sacred Chalice in Valencia, Spain. The, and then there are others, the Nantios Cup in Wales. There are several more beyond that. And, of course, part of the questions about the Grail is uh, the origins of the, of the of the stories. And as with so many Arthurian stories, uh, people look for the Celtic roots of them. Mm-hmm. And so they look at various things, horns of plenty and, and, and things of that nature. The Celtic mythology. mythology. Yeah. Cult, exactly. The cauldron of the never and, and the always refilling cauldron. But as several writers, non-Catholic writers, have said, ultimately, these really aren't very satisfying, either historically or literarily, although they may have played some part. Part of the problem is that the Grail legends themselves are much later additions to the Arthurian stories. Mm. The Arthurian stories obviously have their roots in Celtic myth because Arthur was the last dux bellorum of Britain the Duke of Battles, the last Roman, if you like, in the province of Britain. He's in the on the, the Welsh Cycle of Legends. The version that we have of him today, oddly enough, came from England, from, from Wales, and Cornwall to Brittany. It was picked up by the French and then brought back to England by the Norman French. And now you have the irony where uh, Arthur is considered an English folk hero. Mm-hmm. When, of course, it was the ancestors of the English that he and his people were fighting. Right, right. But the problem is that the grail doesn't appear in the stories that come out of the Celtic origins. As I say, the later editions. So you have to look for their origins elsewhere. Now, there's the question of the relic that's supposed to be the grail. But here you run into several interesting problems. Firstly, the best candidate, in my humble opinion, for the uh, status of grail, it has a provenance going back to the first century, more or less, and that's the Valencia Cup. But it's got very little connection with the grail stories. And then the the emerald is, you know, God knows where that comes from. So the question then is, is there sort of a, a factor, a bridge, something that accounts for this sudden burst of grail legending all at once? Well, I would say, just out of you know, the the point I make in the book, that several things were going on at the time that Wolfram von Eschenbach and Chrétien de Troyes and the others were writing that I think are responsible for the creation of the the stories. The one is what I like to call the Eucharistic Revolution of the 12th century. Remember that it was in the late 1100s, well, mid to late, that the term transubstantiation was originated as the best means of describing what happens at the mass. And this was kind of revolutionary because it made it much easier to understand. Hmm. At that time, you had several several things occurring. You had an uptick in Eucharistic miracles, which, as I point out in the book, you have a lot of Eucharistic miracle-type phenomena surrounding the Grail. In fact, the Grail stories aren't much used historically, but virtually every miraculous element has been reproduced in real life, one way or another. The second thing was connected, I think, to the definition, and that was the uh, vision of uh, St. Giuliano of Cornelius that led to the Feast of Corpus Christi, and eventually the Corpus Christi processions, and so on. These all had an effect, but there was one more, and that is that this, during this period, the Crusades were failing. And in many ways, the Crusades were the origins and, in a sense, the apogee of chivalry, of knighthood, as we know it. And remember that these stories were composed primarily for knightly audiences. So the question that came up for a lot of people at that time and in that position in society, if God is on our side, why are we losing? Well, the real stories provided an answer to that. It linked the sacrifice of the knight with that of Christ, Greater love hath no man than to uh, lay down his life for his friends. And it made the point that it was not victory or defeat that mattered for the knight, for the practice of chivalry. It was the struggle itself. It was the continuing despite everything, like Christ himself. And I think all of these different influences were what ended up inspiring the creation of the Grail Stories. And they were inserted, interestingly enough, not into the matter of France about Charlemagne and all that because he was too historical a figure. But the matter of Britain being further back in time, by about 400 years, and much more open, shall we say, lots of open territory to insert things into, it provided a much better space, a much better fit. And there had always been something sort of quasi-mystical and misty about the Arthurian legends anyway. So it was a good fit. What's kind of funny is that you have all of these people attempting to attribute to the Grail stories and to chivalry itself some sort of weird esoteric meaning. Mm-hmm. Well, the only thing that was esoteric about it is that it was about transubstantiation. And that, of course, leads us into other things. One is that if you look at the motif of the chapel perilous, where the, the knight has to face himself, mm-hmm to find out whether or not he's holy enough to continue on the quest, that comes across very much as a, uh, a good analogy of confession. Yes. And similarly, if you link the grail with transubstantiation, the real presence, then for a little while during each mass, because remember what made the grail the grail was the presence of our Lord's blood in it. So every mass for a little while has the grail, you could see in the elevation an analogy of the appearance of the Grail at uh, at Arthur's uh, round table, and similarly, as years went by, the growth of devotion to both the Sacred Heart and the Precious Blood are sort of, by analogy, linked to the whole idea of the Grail. Mm-hmm. It's not, I think, a coincidence that the Sacred Heart was adopted as the main rallying point and symbol. Of groups that fought for the faith, the Vande, Andreas Hofer, the Tyrol, the Carlists, the Cristeros, and so on and, on and on and on. All of these people were very chivalrous. It was more or less consciously, depending on
0: the group and the time. This quest for the Holy Grail—it's symbolic in the sense that it's it's representing the Eucharist. Yes, and it's—I like that there's real items tied to it as well. Like even in the myths, you know, it's sometimes a spear, sometimes a, a cup. Uh, sometimes both. And it, it, yeah. it reminds me, you know, sort of like Saint Relics and the things that we venerate in Catholicism, these real things that you can
1: touch. Well, absolutely. And of course, as I say, you could venerate the Santo Caliz in Valencia. You could venerate the, um, they could certainly gawk at anyway, the Sacro Catino in Genoa, the Agate Bowl in Vienna. the Antio's Cup is now on display. That has a it's Probably is very unlikely to be the grail, but uh, there was a big tradition in Wales of the saints, various saints, healing people with the use of uh, wooden cups, you know, blessing water, and then uh, having people drink from them. And in all likelihood, it's from one of these that the Nantios cup comes from. Oh, okay. So you do have a little bit of a, a Celtic twilight there. It's true. And I mean, you have all the relics of the passion, really the True Cross, the uh, the Crown of Thorns, the Spear, the Pillar of the Scourging, the Scala Santa in Rome. All of these, anything to do with the Passion, has sort of a grail touch. Mm-hmm. So the Holy Sepulcher itself, you know, or the Cenacle in Jerusalem where uh, the Last Supper took place, all of these things partake in a sense of the grail. And as I, I make the point in the book, in some sense, every perpetual adoration chapel is a grail chapel.
0: Indeed. Yeah. So the quest for the Holy Grail, it, it becomes a Christian and ultimately a Catholic quest because of this, what I believe is, is absolute one to one comparison, as you said, you know, between the Eucharist and
1: the Holy Grail. Uh, yeah.
0: Was chivalry an essentially Catholic practice?
1: Absolutely. Uh, chivalry, and I, I want to recommend for your listeners on this point, a book by a man named Léon Gautier called Chivalry. Available in English, though originally written in French. And it's available at archive.org. It's in print, but... So it comes from the 19th century. And he deals primarily with the matter of France. He uh, doesn't really care for the matter of Britain. He doesn't touch on the grail at all. But he makes some very, very important points about chivalry. That it was the, the church's baptism of the warlike nature of the Germanic tribes and the the employment of that nature in the service of God and the church and the weak. That was the ideal, of course. Not everyone lived up to it, but that's true of everyone who's baptized. For sure. (laughs) The whole chivalric thing led eventually to the founding of the orders of knighthood, like the orders of Malta that we still have today, the Holy Sepulcher, the Teutonic Order and then various of the royal orders of knighthood that are still with us, the Garter, the golden fleece, and so on. All of these were basically a lay spirituality based upon militancy for the faith, quite literally, once upon a time. But even now, not entirely just by way of analogy, because even today, we often have to stand up for the faith, or should stand up for the faith in very difficult circumstances. We may not have weapons to defend it, But we have mouths and pens and things like that, and keyboards. And to the degree that we can, and the degree that we know we should, we have the obligation to defend the faith just as much as any crusader did. And the spirituality of chivalry, again, very heavily rooted in the Blessed Sacrament, in the cross, the Passion, Our Lady. On a more recent note, the Sacred Heart, the Precious Blood, and so on. These are essential to any Catholic living in a time and place where the Church is under attack. And I think we qualify. Yeah. Yes,
0: it's not a comfortable thing to say, but yeah, I think.
1: Well, I mean, look, in the long history of the Church, from the time our Lord created her at the Last Supper and the crucifixion to the present, she's had more difficulties and problem periods than she's had periods of peace. And inevitably, the solution to one era's problems, often, often, often gives rise to the next era's problems. Mm -hmm. That's why, I mean, St. Paul, of course, likens the Catholic life to a life of combat. And I mean, at the very least, we've always got our our lower natures, you know, the world, the flesh, and the devil to combat.
0: Indeed. So, you have a a nice little bit about Joseph of Arimathea in the book. How is he involved in these legends? (laughs)
1: Well, said, Joseph of Arimathea in the scriptural, the uh, the scriptural account, which uh, we can take his gospel, ha, 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 Uh, the, uh, the scriptural account shows us that he was responsible for the tomb in which our Lord was laid. Now, the legend has him taking the Holy Grail with him from Palestine after gathering our Lord's blood of the crucifixion in it. And here, you also touch upon the question of blood relics of our Lord. Now, these tend to come in several different varieties. There are, of course, Eucharistic miracles, and there are images and and statues of our Lord that have bled, and the blood has been collected. But there are also relics of our Lord that are believed to be relics that came directly from him when he was crucified. St. Thomas Aquinas argued against the existence of such. But Pope Benedict XV, argued, I think, quite convincingly in their favor. At any rate, things like the holy blood of Bruges and the blood of Mantua have been venerated for century upon century, and it would be very rash, especially because they've been approved by the church for so long, to do otherwise. At any rate, the story then that was added to the Arthurian legend was that Saint Joseph of Arimathea brought the Grail to England and when he founded the church at Glastonbury, hid it somewhere there. There are a few problems with this, one of them being that the story of his bringing the grail there is not the way the story of Joseph of Arimathea started out. Apparently what happened was an earlier tale, that of St. Joseph of Arimathea coming to Britain, to Glastonbury, striking his staff on the ground, taking root and flowering, That was later grafted on to the Grail stories. In its original version, he brings to Glastonbury, not the Grail, but a relic of the blood and a relic of the water that flowed from Christ's side. The interesting thing about that is that, according to legend, he placed these two relics in springs, or springs arose up on the side of them. And there are in Glastonbury today, two springs side by side, very close by. The uh, White Spring and the Chalice Well. The Chalice Well's water is slightly red. The Silver uh, Spring's water is very whitish. And they'll tell you it's because of minerals, but it's interesting that two springs so close together should have such different colors. Yes, indeed. I can't say it's true, but I can't say it's false. Interestingly, though, uh, St. Joseph of Arimathea's supposed staff continued to bloom at Christmas time. Which no other hawthorn variety does in England. They don't bloom at Christmas, but it does, and it blooms at Easter as well. And at Christmas time from the Middle Ages, they would send a sprig of flowers from the thorn to the king at London. During the English Civil War, the Puritans cut it down, but cuttings were saved and have been replanted. And those cuttings, to this day, continue to bloom at Christmas time. And so now, every year, a few weeks before Christmas, there's a big ceremony in Glastonbury. And the mayor and the uh, rector of the Anglican Church and a bunch of other local dignitaries have a ceremony where they cut some flowers from the Glastonbury thorn. It's sent to the monarch, the queen before last year, and now the king. And very often, if you watch the, uh, the queens and the king's Christmas speech, sometimes you'll see a vase of flowers. And those are flowers from the Glastonbury thorn. Wow. And you said the, the Puritans cut that down. They did, they did. But fortunately, as I say, cuttings were saved. There are even a few in North America. They bloom at Christmas. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Of course, this is why, you know, separating quote-unquote fact from quote-unquote fiction is very difficult because, you know, the old joke, let me see you start a legend. <laughs> uh, the funny thing about popular memory is that it's not always right, but it's often right. Mm-hmm. And yet, sometimes it'll get things, it'll get things right, and it'll, it'll distort other things. Yeah,
0: yeah, I, it, I deal a lot with folklore, and I, I tell people it's like a, it's like a very long-term game of whispering down the lane.
1: It is. It's amazing what will turn out to be absolutely, completely accurate, and what will turn out not to be.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But there is, uh, I think, there is something in every folkloric motif. And the more universal the motif, the likier it is to be true. Yes. Yeah. Um, I sing
0: traditional ballads. There's a saying amongst ballad singers that you know, a bad song doesn't get to become traditional.
1: I would argue that you know, with
0: one or two of them but for the most part
1: I well for the most part yeah I, I agree and even the ones that aren't great if they do survive it's because there's something to them there's exactly. something compelling yeah. about
0: them There's there's a reason things have lasted there's a reason these stories exist there's a reason these songs have lasted whether it's passing down inf- important information or you know some kind of essential truth or even, you know, sometimes with folklore, it's like, hey, don't eat that plant.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, if it if it weren't for Ring Around the Rosie, I wouldn't have known what to do during COVID. <laughs> don't ask me what that means. I just threw that out there. I, I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was, like, was kind of like,
0: huh, now I'll have to go do a deep dive on Ring Around the Rosie for the next pandemic.
1: To, please don't waste the time. I just, <laughs> I'm, no, I'm not about throwing these things out just to see what happens. Uh, <laughs> I guess you could make the case that if you uh, crush the posies to your nose, you might the, the COVID might pass by you. I don't know.
2: Yeah, who knows? Who knows?
1: And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.
0: In your last chapter, which might have been my favorite of the book, you give suggestions to people if they want to do like a modern day grail quest of their own. And I thought it was just a wonderful chapter because I feel like people are called to tradition. I think that's a big part of what is missing in modern society and why a lot of people are so unmoored because they're just not connected to any sort of tradition. And I feel like people are called to seeking in a sense. And again, I think that's why people tend to wander from idea to idea without that traditional base, but you you have this sort of advice for the modern, you know, would-be grail quester. Could we go over that a bit? I just thought that chapter was fantastic.
1: Well, sure. Thanks. As I recall, it's been a while since I've read the book, but <laughs> no as I, well, you know, it's, it's uh, I hate to admit this, but I've written one book since and I'm almost done with another. So it, my my memory gets shady. Oh no! I'm um, so. I have another podcast that ha- has
0: like 500 episodes almost, and people will ask me like something from episode, you know, 100 or something.
1: I'm like, I I have no recollection, you know. So yeah, no.
0: if you're actively working on things, sometimes you can't have perfect recall of everything else you've done.
1: No. So if if you want to, if, if there's something in particular that jumps at you, just ask, and that'll draw my memory. But as I recall, in general. You know, again, I made reference to the fact that perpetual adoration chapels are like Grail chapels. Yes. The confessional is like the chapel perilous. But there was more. I mean, visiting shrines when you can, basilicas, look, going out to see what you can of the faith externally.
0: Yes, you said that. You know, if you can make the big pilgrimage to Europe or or to the Holy Land great, but if not. These things are available to you locally, like you said, in the form of adoration, in the form of, you know, local shrines and so forth.
1: Yeah, and and if, I don't know if I mentioned this, but if all that's available to you is being able to make a visit to a a church with a tabernacle and being able to set up a home altar, then do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also, I do recall talking about the importance of the church here.
0: Yes. Yeah, that was another Uh, big thing. Yeah, yeah sitting within the different feasts and so forth and and observances.
1: Yes. Yeah. It it doesn't hurt, too, if you're interested in chivalry and knighthood and all that kind of thing, to read those stories that are set in particular times. Christmas is a good time to read Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. My favorite. Pentecost is a great time to read about the coming of the Grail. And so it goes. Importance of the church year to our chivalric ancestors it rooted them in the life of Christ because that's what the church here is based on, in a way that we ourselves should be rooted. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, Marian devotions are very, very important. Uh, so much of uh, the chivalric treatment of women came from the veneration of Our Lady. That's important to bear in mind, too, that every woman is, despite <laughs> perhaps her appearance or, and or actions, she is, in a sense, copy of the Blessed Virgin. Of course, contrary, wise ladies, when you look at a man, you know, remember Christ. Mm -hmm. There were all sorts of stories in the Middle Ages about knights and Our Lady. The fellow who, uh, I'm a little vague on the uh, the details right now, but if I recall, he was supposed to go into a tournament, but he stopped by the road to venerate a, a shrine of Our Lady. So he made himself late. He gets there only to find out he'd already won. Yes,
0: I covered that story on a episode of this podcast.
1: Yeah, well, it, it's a wonderful story. Yeah, it's very, very typical of what uh, our ancestors, and particularly the knights, thought of Our Lady. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so much of what we say about our Queen of Heaven, even the even the the phrase Our Lady Notre uh, Dame, is very, very, very chivalric. And again, the, you know, the later devotion of the kingship of Christ and the queenship of Mary, these two, they're intertwined. And while not specifically medieval, nevertheless, partake very much of that spirit. Mm -hmm.
0: Beautifully point out Mary as sort of the original grail, in a sense.
1: Yes. Yes. In fact, there's a, uh, a very recent Russian Orthodox icon, which of its nature can't really be connected To the Grail stories, but it's a beautiful illustration. It shows Our Lady. You know how the Byzantine icons will have Our Lady with Our Lord inside her? Mm -hmm. Well, he's inside her, all right, but he's coming out of the chalice. Oh, wow. And they call that Our Lady of the Unquenchable Chalice. This icon is frequently used by uh, Eastern Orthodox and Byzantine Catholics who are combating alcoholism. Mm. But it is a beautiful, beautiful rendition of Our Lady as the First Grail.
0: It's an, just a wonderful symbol because, like anything he got human-wise, came from Mary. I mean, there's yes, yeah.
1: Well, that's that's why, for instance, thinking again of the Eucharistic miracles, in a few cases they've been able to find in the uh, blood and or flesh of the recent. Miracles, strands of DNA, but they haven't been able to map them because they've only been single strands. Amazing. It it is amazing because, of course, you know, presuming that this material does in some strange sense somehow or other come from the human body of our Lord, transfigured in heaven, glorified in heaven. Well, it still retains its earthly properties. And he had only a single human parent.
0: The Eucharistic miracles you talk about, and I could be wrong about this, and maybe you don't know, but I believe all of the approved ones that they've tested have come up with the same blood type.
1: That's correct, Rh negative, Amazing. which, oddly enough, is also the blood type of the Shroud of Turin, and the uh, Sudario of Oviedo, which was the face covering, also the blood type of the very old blood from the miracle of Lanciano.
0: What are the chances?
1: Well, if I were an unbeliever, I would say it doesn't matter what the chances are. It can't be true. <laughs> but since I'm not, and I, I don't have that kind of faith mm-hmm. that an unbeliever would have to have right, right, yeah. to be able to explain this away. You know, it's, it's like the Shroud of Turin. For it to be a medieval phony, quote unquote, you would have had to have had a medieval master who had somehow harnessed nuclear energy for artistic purposes had a collection of first century pollen that he was able to put into the cloth, had a knowledge of anatomy superior to anybody else at the time. I mean, the amount of faith required to believe that the Shroud of Turin is a medieval forgery is far more than I've ever had. Yeah, it cannot be. Well, I'm not saying that. I wouldn't. I. I I don't. I'm a Californian. We don't. We don't. You know. In my mind,
0: it cannot be a medieval forgery. But okay, that's. We'll leave the possibility open. Just a quick detour on that. (laughs) It's it's something interesting. But in art class in college, one of my professors was telling me about uh, how you know in in crucifixion paintings from medieval times on up through till really modern times, you see nails through the hands. And he said, at some point, a fellow started testing that out with cadavers and found that hands don't hold it. It has to be through the wrist. What he did not tell me is the reason that guy started doing those tests was because of the shroud of turn, because he looked at it and the wound went through the wrist on the shroud of turn. And that inspired him to do those tests. So, you know, it's just the things that people leave out are interesting.
1: Well, I, and they do it for a purpose. I mean, yeah. one of the questions uh, I asked in the book, as I recall, when I was listing some of the, the miracles and all that, is that they're amazing. They're absolutely bizarre and astonishing. So why aren't people jumping up and down about them? Well, lack of belief,
2: mm-hmm.
1: both both outside the church and inside.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: One of the things that's important to remember is that if you're a a, a minister of a given faith, And you've spent most of your career not really believing that faith. And suddenly there's incontrovertible evidence that it's actually true. That's very difficult. Mm -hmm. That's very, very difficult. There was a a science fiction short story. I don't remember who wrote it, but it's back in the 40s, you know, the golden age of science fiction, which had some heathen religion on an alien planet. High priest elect is chortling to himself, because the high priest whom he's supposed to replace very shortly seems to be doing an incredible job moving the idol that they worship's eyes and hands and all that, and speaking, and he thinks he's doing a really, really great job. And of course, he's snickering to himself at all of the rubes, making obeisance to this idol. Well, the way the story ends is that a group of assistant priests come running out and call him and so say, you've got to come to the high priest's apartments. He's dead. So apparently there was nobody operating the idol. Hmm. And it says and that was how, I forget the names of either the idol or the high priest, will say that was how uh, the high priest designate Clark Ash, uh, high priest designate of the great god Zogo, went mad. So if you can imagine being a priest, who has doubted or disbelieved in transubstantiation for a good chunk of his career, suddenly having his face rubbed in the fact that it's true.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. There are three things he could do. He could alter his beliefs and possibly lifestyle to accommodate that, or he could deny it. He could absolutely say, well, no, that can't be true.
0: Yeah, cognitive dissonance.
1: Yeah. And if that's true of a cleric, how much truer of non-Catholics? Mm-hmm. And of course, I hate to burst anyone's balloon, but non-Catholics are in charge of our media, our government, and our academia. Oh yeah, sorry to break the news to anyone.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, 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 indeed. I love these stories of these miracles, and this podcast is about saints. And there's also often, you know, wonderful stories of. <sighs> miracles that saints perform. You know, some of the stuff I'm taking from medieval hagiographies. So again, we have that folklore thing. It was whispered down the lane. Maybe it got exaggerated, but when you come to modern saints, like St. Gemma Galgani or St. Padre Pio, where people were around when these things happened and people could document to me, it's like, well, wait a minute, like a number of people experienced this stuff and, you know, can attest to this. And so many people, Catholic and non-Catholic alike, you can just see their eyes just kind of glaze over, you know, I'm telling this stuff.
1: Well, they do, because the alternative is to change. Mm. The alternative is to say, oh, heavens, that's true. There really is a heaven. There really is a hell. There really is a purgatory. And I could go to any one of those three. Mm-hmm. The, the sad truth of the matter is that on a certain level, these things offend us, you know. I had an interesting experience in Belgium in a town called Hasselt, where the holy host of Hasselt is exhibited in the church in a monstrance. It's a bleeding host from the Middle Ages. You know, it was abused and cut into, and it started to bleed. So the fellow was doing it dropped it and called the priest. And it's been, it was put in a monstrance it has been venerated ever since. Well, I went to go see it, and there it is in the monstrance, a host, a little bit off color, with a brown stain. And I looked at it, and then it hit me: that monstrance is not an airtight container, and that thing has been sitting there for hundreds of years. It has no right to exist, and yet there it is, just there. You don't like it? Tough. Yeah. And that that made a big a big impression on me, actually,
0: mm-hmm.
1: because it's like the tilma in Guadalupe.
0: Yeah, I was just going to bring it up. Yeah. yeah, it should
1: not be. No, it has no right From everything we know. It has no right to exist. It's it's offensive to our sensibilities. And uh, you know how we are with our tender sensibilities. Mm-hmm. So I can just say that God does what he feels like doing, even if we're not entirely happy with it.
0: Well, I'll tell you, I had a moment where um, someone had sent me a certain relic. I don't want to get into it. It's, it's a very, very long story. But I tore open the package and the kitchen filled with the scent of roses. And with the, the scent of which, the scent of roses, ah, like immediately. And my wife is a skeptic and uh, non-believers across the kitchen doing dishes, and I, I tear open this package with her back turned. She goes, "Ooh, roses!" It was that quickly that the, the kitchen just filled it up. We have a large kitchen, this old Victorian farmhouse. That was a turning point for me. So instead of like not doing, that was the point where like oh now it's time to get serious and I am yeah. saying the rosary every day, and I began doing the things, you know, that I wasn't doing before that I should have been. But, yeah, it's, so it had sort of the opposite effect for me because it was kind of a slap upside the head, like, whoa, okay, here's something that happened.
1: No, I, I can certainly see that. And the, the sad truth of the matter is that it's the easiest thing, and we all do it from time to time. We're lulled by what we consider normality.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that normality... Lures us into a, a false sense of security in a way. And the thing is, you know, in a way, the miraculous good is worse than the preternatural evil. Because you see, you can invoke God against preternatural evil. When it comes to the good, when it comes to bleeding hosts or miraculous relics or statues, there's no refuge from that.
0: Yeah, I'm reminded of certain saints, these apparitions would appear and the first thing they would say is, you know, they would rebuke it in the name of Jesus. If it went away, it went away. If it didn't, then they, they knew it was something, right?
1: Yeah. And and they were kind of stuck with it.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Then you got you got something. I was I was thinking of Saint Teresa of Avila. She said, you know, I'm sure you've heard the story, but she was standing on the street, a carriage goes by and spatters her with mud, and she looked up and said, Oh Lord, why'd you let this happen to me? Christ answered her and said, Teresa, don't you realize it's only my friends I treat this way? Her response was, no one got so few friends. (laughs) True story. (laughs) Back Uh, to the
2: grail.
0: Yes. As you're doing research for this, did you run into any of this it's very problematic research—the the holy blood, holy grail stuff—the you know the the stuff that led to the Da Vinci Code and all that. Did you run into any of that as you're doing your research?
1: Well, I've read all that stuff years and years ago. Mm-hmm. That stuff—it's what it really is—is is sort of watered down Steinerism. Mm. I, I don't have ever heard of Rudolf Steiner.
0: I, I have. I'm not too familiar, but I, the name is certainly familiar.
1: Well, basically. He was a an Austrian fellow who took over the German-speaking part of the Theosophical Society. Okay, he considered that too Hinduish and so on. So he went into the quote-unquote Western spiritual tradition, but it was all sort of refashioned through his own head. And the Anthroposophical Society, you probably have never heard of, but you'll have heard of their educational arm, the Waldorf schools. Ah, okay, yeah. The Waldorf schools, interestingly enough, a big part of their curriculum is centered around the church festivals, the church year. And that's because that was a big part of what Steiner was on about. We talked a lot about the Grail. The people who wrote Holy Blood, Holy Grail, Michael and the rest of them, had been anthroposophists. So they based a lot of their mythology, which is the best I can call it, on that. And you know, The problem with Steiner, of course, is that when you take Catholic things and try to give them a whole different meaning, you ruin them. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Although I have to admit, he he was a big fan of St. Michael, and Steiner's illustration of St. Michael coming in and chopping away the heat of summer with his sword was something that as a Southern Californian I would appreciate. (laughs) But no, I never gave any of that stuff, any of their, their stuff, any credence i followed
0: it a little bit until that i have a friend who's much much more knowledgeable about medieval history than i was and he was he's was kind of like looking over my shoulder in a sense as i'm you know reading through this stuff and he, and he's just like eventually he just showed me a uh, some of the family trees of the medieval kings and, and royalty and so forth and that that cured me right there because so much of what there's basing that stuff on is these family trees, which, yes, they do have, you know, Adam and Jesus and stuff, but they also have Zeus and, you know, Saturn and Thor in them as well. It's it's a little bit silly.
1: Yeah. And I say Mary Magdalene as the wife of Christ and her, their descendants having the blood royal, the sangreal. Please spare me. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little much, but...
0: You have to address it, I guess, in the general sense. If you,
1: yeah, well, yeah, yeah, well, I mean, it's it's alongside people trying to read Celtic fertility myths into uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Mm-hmm. The problem, even if you've got pagan or, or some other origins to these things, it's like with the Christmas tree and the holly and mistletoe. You know, very, very few people who aren't Wiccans that are worshipping Thor when they put up a Christmas tree. Right. You know, when you put up holly and mistletoe, you're doing it to honor Christmas. You're not doing it to honor some pagan deity. So, I, I mean, these things are all special pleading, but of course people take them at face value. You know, it's it's like the de-Christianization of Halloween. Mm-hmm. It's it, People will, will read Margaret Murray or whomever and take this stuff at face value and then use it to devalue the real thing. Indeed, And that's, that's as true of the Holy Grail as anything else. I mean, I've had people say to me, uh, oh, isn't the Holy Grail some sort of esoteric thing? No. Esoteric types may read things into it. But they can do that with anything. Mm-hmm. I remember reading a book called When Santa Claus Was a Shaman. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> no. But you could do that with almost anything, you know, perhaps uh the George Washington was really an Odin Monke.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, well, it's it's
1: this Could de- be true.
0: <laughs> it's this desire to I don't know. I had a neo-pagan friend who once told me that St. Francis was quote-unquote actually pagan and so was St. Hildegard and it's I mean it's how do you art you know, it's like no, he wasn't. I mean, there's like there's no question about it, but you know, once they decide on something, you know, it's, it's hard to uh, convince them otherwise.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, they, it's someone they like, mm-hmm. the Alex. You know, it's it's like, like I think there's some religious group that uh, canonized Victor Hugo. Well, if you want him as a saint, he's all yours. <laughs>
0: <There> you <go. laughs> Do you have a favorite uh, pop culture expression of the Grail myths, whether it's a book or a, a movie or
1: anything like that? A pop culture expression. You know, that's the funny thing, because I, I've read a great deal of, of the original Grail stories and so on. The two pop culture expressions that people know about, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and what's his name, and the uh, Last Crusade, Indiana Jones mm-hmm. and the Last Crusade, of those two, I'd take Indiana Jones over Monty Python.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But, you know, I'm not really ecstatic about either one, Yeah. because, see, the problem is the Grail... The grail is so tightly connected to the Eucharist to me, so tightly connected to the Last Supper, so tightly connected to chivalry, that presenting it not uh, unconnected to, to those things, I don't know, it, it's, it's it's as though you had Santa Claus appearing on the 4th of July.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it, why, would, why would you do that? I, I think, though, for most people, if you read Sir Thomas Mallory's King Arthur, which you'll notice is about 200 years after the, uh, the Grail stories stopped being written as originals. When Mallory was writing, the Grail had become an ordinary part of the stories. You might say that Sir Thomas Mallory kind of codified the Arthurian stories in English. But by that time, you, that became the basic cultural reference to the Grail. It was Mallory. And he does a good job.
0: Did you happen to catch? It's a few years old now. The Green Knight movie that came out.
1: You know, I did not. I was here in Austria, and I didn't see it. It's
0: like I said. That's of all the Arthurian related mythos, etc. That's my favorite story. Absolutely love it. And they almost got it right. And sometimes that's worse than missing by a mile. I think for me, there's there's certain elements of it that's just like, oh, why did you do that? Because you were you were came so close to getting it right.
1: Well, you, you know, it's funny you mention that. I did see a film that, you know, the, it was combination of uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and one other story with Gawain. I forget which one. Uh, Le bel I think. But it was called Sword of the Valiant. And it showed Sean Connery as the Green Knight.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I have that. Yeah. <laughs> well, The best part of that film to me was the, the, the opening scenes, you know, and his arrival and all that kind of thing. But as I looked at him, I thought, my heavens, it's the ghost of Christmas present. Yes, yeah, right. Yeah, Which, you know, leads you to think a little bit further. I mean, it does, in a sense, make sense, because after all, the green knight appears at Christmas. Mm-hmm. And the, the funny thing, too, not to go too far afield, but you're familiar with the figure of Father Christmas in England, yeah. who today has been sort of colonized by Santa Claus. But in origin... Father Christmas was the personification of Christmas customs fighting the Puritans. And he was seen as an ally by the Cavaliers, you see. Mm. This was particularly true when the Puritans were running England. You know, for the 10 years that Cromwell ran the show under the ground. Old Christmas, Father Christmas, was seen as a a rallying point for the enemies of Cromwell. Then he survived as a gift-giver afterwards. So there is, in Christmas, oddly enough... I think. A weird chivalric touch. Certainly, as I, I mentioned in the book, King Arthur keeps Christmas at different places the way he keeps Easter and keeps Pentecost. And it, it was it was a big thing in uh, medieval times, and it should be an our day as well. My favorite time of the year. Mine too. I love it.
0: The book is A Catholic Quest for the Holy Grail. The author is Charles Colum. Thank you so much for coming on The Flowered Path. Where can people find your books and anything else uh, that you want to
1: mention? Well, sure. You can find the uh, book you know, wherever TAN books are sold. Uh, you can find it online, uh, either from TAN or Amazon or all sorts of other booksellers. If you want to uh, tune into either of my podcasts, Tumblr House, which is a YouTube channel, has off-the-menu every Monday. And then on Tuesday, Virgin Most Powerful Radio, vpmr.org, has my never-ending struggle, which is a, uh, st- the story of the triumphs and tragedies of the Catholic Church through the ages. You could read my writings, if you were keen on doing something like that, at the European Conservative, Peter, 1 Peter 5, Crisis, and Catholicism.org. I think that's about all I've got to hawk, except that the Blessed Emperor Charles book, The Legacy of a Holy Emperor from Tan, is out. And I'm working on two books right now. One I should be done with, I hope, in a few days, which is the Empress Zita book. The other is for Angelico Press. I hope to have it done within a month and a half. And that is a collection of writings by the Archduke Otto, Son of Karl, about the United States. So he's being placed as the Catholic and Imperial de Tocqueville, if you will. Awesome. Well, hopefully
0: I can talk to you again. This was a fantastic conversation. Thank you once again. Thank you. I'll put links to Charles' book and podcast in the show notes. Once again, I'd like to mention the Etsy shop I run with my wife. It's called Lost Grave. If you go there, you'll see a lot of my artwork and books related to my other podcast, Strange Familiars. But there's also a section for the flowered path. I've got paracord rosaries in there, adjustable length paracord necklaces with saint medals attached. We've got bandanas with a Blessed Virgin Mary print as well, and some other things that the flowered path listeners might be interested in. Again, our shop name is Lost Grave. If you type in Lost Grave at Etsy, it should ask you if you mean the shop Lost Grave. Or you can go to etsy.com shop slash Lost Grave, and that'll take you right to it. There are also links in the show notes. You can find The Flowered Path on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Flowered Path. The Flowered Path is on Instagram as well, at The Flowered Path, one word. And The Flower Path is on the web at thefloweredpath.com. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with more.